Good morning on the West Coast and a great day to you wherever and whenever you may be listening. My name is Jason Dyes, broadcasting and podcasting live from the studio of EloquentOnline.net in beautiful New Braunfels, Texas, Republic thereof. Welcome to a special episode of The Power of Performance, the show that asks the question, if your brand were a band, would you leave the audience wanting more? Well, if your brand right now is maybe saying too much or not enough and all the stuff that you're seeing on the news is causing some disharmony in your brand, you will not leave the audience wanting more. And I've been very hard on the millennial generation for what I perceived as their inability to have conversations about these great cultural things that seem to occur all the time now. And that's been a little unfair on my part. We are who we were. And I didn't grow up with social media, but but the millennials did. And so a lot of times they take the social media with a hashtag or an emoticon or a meme in an attempt to convey something. Well, the other day, our guest today, his wife put out something that was very long and very heartfelt and very passionate. And in that post, she talked about the inability to be colorblind. And while I agree with that in the context of we all have, most of us have visual acuity, we see things, we, we can't help but notice things, you can, in fact, be colorblind maybe out of just the way you're brought up. I grew up in the Northeast military community of San Antonio, Texas, where none of us were any one thing, you know, black, white, brown, yellow, whatever. Any any Johnny Cottonseed could go out into the military world and marry someone where we had won a war or were keeping the peace and come home with a wife that didn't look like, you know, leave it to Beaver's mom. And so the, the children that were offsprings of those unions did not fit into any kind of convenient category. I mean, my bus stop in elementary school and beyond looked like the characters from a Mario Kart game. And so I reached out to the wife of our guest today and said, hey, love to have you come on the show. She said, hey, public speaking is not really my thing, but my husband feels very passionate about these things. And I said, well, hey, we would love that. I've been cracking back on all these hour-long webinars because they lack passion. They lack any kind of interest or enjoyment. And so this episode is a little longer than our standard format. So if you want to break it up in pieces, I get that. But our guest today, J.J. Nunez, has experienced some very ugly racial incidences in his time in places that you might not expect. And, you know, I myself, being brown, I can't tell you what it's like to be black or white. Being in the middle has always had its advantages. And I will tell you very candidly, the only people that have ever really treated me bad were other Hispanics because I did not grow up in that traditional Hispanic environment. I'm adopted. My parents are Anglos from Massachusetts who ended up in Laredo, Texas with the Air Force. Brown babies were everywhere and boom, instant family, $100 and a handshake. Well, JJ too has a very unique route to where he is now, his background, and, and how he ended up being an American citizen. And while there was not a debate, it's more of a discussion, I was struck by that similarity. And I realized we all have that probably in our past. We all have a, a different route that gets us to where we are today. And that great tapestry is what I wish we would spend more time talking about rather than all of this other stuff, which is very, very difficult for someone like me who has never experienced some of the things that JJ has experienced. So this is the interview recorded yesterday on the 9th of June in the year of our Lord, 2020. All right, folks, here we are. It is summer of 2020, 923 years ago. If you were in the Crusader Army heading out of Europe to Anatolia, modern-day Turkey, on the First Crusade, headed for the big showdown, the Battle of Doraleum in 1097, you and your Crusader buddies might have looked pretty similar European, if you get my drift. Well, our next guest is a former crusader from the wonderful Valparaiso University. His name is J.J. Nunez. He works in athletics. He is technically still a free agent. You might see him in the NFL this year. Hey, you never know, right? It is a special edition of the Power Performance. We're going to go up to New York State, and we're going to do it all right after this. 
state of mind, even here in New Braunfels, Texas, Republic thereof. In the interest of full disclosure, our guest today, his mother-in-law was my son's first grade teacher and his father-in-law is my son's seventh grade teacher and better teachers one never had. Hey, JJ, how are you? Doing well, Jason. How are you doing today? It is so good to have you on the show. Wow. <laughs> Studio audience already asking if you can get them Super Bowl tickets. What a bunch of freeloaders. I got to tell you, our studio audience is the worst. All right. Uh, again, in the interest of full disclosure, um, your, your wife, Sarah, had a post recently talking about the abolition of the law that prevented interracial couples from getting married. I thought it was an interesting lesson in radio when we can't see people. Um, you played Division One football. Uh, your, your wife, Sarah, made that post and right to ask people, based on those two facts, who was black and who was white in the relationship. My guess is a lot of people would assume you are the African-American black gentleman in the relationship as you are, based almost entirely on the athletic part. We're going to talk about that in a second. But what I first want to get to is a phrase that I continue to hear used in this discussion post-Minneapolis and the George Floyd situation, and that it's liberally applied to America. I don't mean politically liberal. I mean the adverb a lot of or in great generous amounts. I want to ask you, JJ, do we have a problem with systemic racism in the United States circa 2020? So, yeah, if I were to give a simple yes or no answer uh, with no explanation and that was just simply you wanted to hear yes or no, I would absolutely say yes. But it is far <laughs> more uh, complex than just a yes or no uh, answer. Right. Uh, President Barack Obama won 797 electoral votes in his two elections. His wife, Michelle Obama, sold 10 million copies. Uh, I don't know. I, when I hear that term, you say it's a, it's a little more complicated than that. Could you elaborate on that? What do you, what do you mean? If you, if you didn't have to give a yes or no answer, is it yes with some modifications or no with some modifications? Uh, it's, it's yes with some modifications. I mean, because systemic racism, by definition, uh, plenty of scholars have done uh, research on this, and plenty of people have lived it. And we all understand that it's far more subtle than it is overt. Uh, an action of, of, of racism is you can see it. It's a cause right. and effect, and clearly it's wrong. And mm -hmm. everybody speaks out against that. I mean, there, there's, no, there's no argument that, hey, you shouldn't treat anybody differently because of how they look. Nobody's going to argue against that. <laughs> right? But, however, when it comes to systems which are made of a people, it gets, it gets, very, it gets very, very complicated because it's a subtle – they're subtle little things. Yeah, well, you're right, and, this, and the subtlety is something even I've experienced. For people who don't know this, because I do a podcast, and, I, and a lot of people have never seen me, uh, when, I, when I went out to California a couple of years ago, JJ, I met the sponsors of my podcast, and two people said exactly the same thing to me. They said, oh, I always thought you were a white guy. <laughs> which I'm not. You and I have met. Oh, I'm, in that, I'm in that unique situation of being neither black or white. In fact, this would send people into the safe spaces nowadays. Um, but when I was a kid, my mom used to tell me my parents are white from Massachusetts who adopted myself and my brother and my sister Elizabeth. You know, my parents would say, oh, when God put you in the oven, you came out just right. <laughs> you know, you were not too dark, you were not too light. And you can't imagine saying that today. Well, every time one of these events, these terribly unfortunate events occur, we hear a refrain. We need to communicate better. We need to talk more. We need to intentionally engage one another or some variation of that. However, um, we've had a lot of high publicized situations where people saying that all lives matter has become intolerable in popular culture. I wanted to ask you about that. Does that help this situation at all? And your thoughts on it, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I have a hard time understanding how that argument gets 
brought up because here's here's how the sentences and how the argument usually goes. Okay, so one person says Black Lives Matter, period. Right. If you were to press enter on a keyboard, the next response is enter. No, 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 period. All lives matter, period. I don't really see that as a very good argument against whatever Black Lives Matter um, represents in, within, within the perception of the person responding that all lives matter. Right. Black Lives Matter is not, is not a movement that is, that, is, uh, that is exclusively saying that Black Lives Matter more. It is from the perception of systematic racism and the actual practices of systematic racism and how, how, and how black people have felt less valued, including myself. I have definitely felt less valued as a black person within the United States, the greatest mm-hmm. country in the world, however, but we do still have some problems with people having access to economic growth, uh, social mobility, shelter, medical need, uh, proper, nu- proper nutritional resources, and those things are denied and not given to people of color within our country. So, yeah, I, I, like, I, I don't understand where the, where the argument that no, 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 period, all lives matter, period. I don't understand why that gets brought up as, as, a, as a counter to Black Lives Matter. Right. Yeah. Well, like I said, it's difficult for people like me who have not been in this situation before. But it, you're right. I mean, it, both can be true. They're both they're not mutually exclusive, but it does, it, it's become sort of like the mask. You know, if you wear a mask, you care. If you don't wear a mask, you don't care. And to me, it's just one of those tertiary things mm-hmm. in this larger discussion that just seems to get played out in the tab fields of social media, but it doesn't really accomplish anything. I want to go to something that you do know about. I was surprised to hear you say your parents are very accomplished, you're very accomplished, and yet despite that, you experienced this situation growing up in the United States of America, you're a young gentleman. So it wasn't like it was in the 1950s or 1960s or even 1970s, but you played division one football at Valparaiso with a team that was composed of, I'm assuming a variety of races. We can agree that the punter and the kickers are usually one race, but everybody else can be kind of, kind of mixed up. And maybe the racial differences didn't seem so important because you were pursuing a common goal of winning. I wanted to ask you, did you ever face discrimination in sports on campus, real and or unintentional? And are there lessons we can apply from the sporting world to our overall society? So, yeah, so if we can go back to the, the family history, I, I would like to, if we can discuss that, that would be uh, oh, a course. great place yeah. to start on, on the history of my family to, get, to, get, to have the listeners understand more about what my background actually is. And, and, and my experiences. So yeah, I have a very unique experience when it comes to the, the, the if you were to categorize it, the black experience in the United States. Uh, my dad is, was born in Jamaica to a Scottish Canadian um, who, who has red hair, about as red as you can get, and to a Jamaican father. He was born there in 1963. Uh, Jamaica became independent from a British colony in 1962. Um, so his, so my, 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 my grandfather, uh, Neville Nunes, had a British passport at, at one point as a Jamaican <laughs> citizen, which is crazy. Crazy to think about. That's my grandfather. And so like dealing with I never knew that, by the way. <laughs> I never knew that. Yeah, yeah so, so it's, not, it's, not, it's not that long ago. It's not that, we're not that long ago. My, my, mom, my mom was born in Selma, Alabama. Um, parents who both were sharecroppers at one point um, in, in, in Alabama. And... Really, man, I am I'm lucky. I, I got lucky and I got blessed. So, my, so those two grandparents, my mom's parents, are both college educated, and one's a Lutheran pastor, um, retired Lutheran pastor, and one's a retired Lutheran school teacher. Um, and they both got college education from being sharecroppers, which is social mobility that you can't have in any other country at all. That's why I say the United States is so great. But, yeah, I'm thinking, like, and, I, and I've done reflection on this plenty of times, that is that's amazing, and but also sad. I was like, yo, that's not that long ago that my grandparents were glorified slaves. It's they were not that long ago. Yeah. To whoever, whoever owned the land. Also, my grandfather had a British passport in, in, in his country of Jamaica, and my dad's a double immigrant from Jamaica to Canada to the United States. So yeah, I have a different different view and a different view on race than 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 most because. We have an international type type of feel to to what we do and to where we're at. Um, most of my family are immigrants. I mean, I'm the son of an immigrant. 
um, I'm the first generation of newness men to be born in the United States. That's amazing, and that's, that's wonderful. So, yeah, so that, that's, that's where my family comes from, and they, they came to, my dad came to this country to start a better life and to get education, right. which, is, which is the liberalization of any type of oppression and the only way to get to that point. So, yeah, so that's, that's well, so can I, yeah, so can I ask you, when people, when people saw you on campus playing football, do you think some people automatically assumed you were from the Section 8 housing of some city and now had an opportunity to play college football strictly because of that? That's what I meant by unintentional racism. Oh, yeah, I don't, I don't think I – think, I think thinking about people's intentions and assumptions of you is very, very dangerous uh, because it could mm. drive you crazy, especially as a black man in the United States. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it has. It, it, so, yeah, it has driven you crazy. I know it. You have no idea of people being nice to you because they feel bad for you that you've only that you've got an opportunity uh, to play Division One football because so of the race that you are because you come from a low income background. Uh, you have no idea, and like so right. that 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 will drive that will drive someone crazy, and it's also unfair to to the person to assume to work on those assumptions because I understand their assumption of me. I don't want I don't want to have the same assumption as 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 they have of me that I think you, you know what I'm saying that that whole perception of course idea, yes. It's dangerous and it's a, it's a horrible game to play with yourself. But, but I'm sure there were. I mean, I had a professor at Valpo tell me that it's impossible to do my major and be a football player at the same time. And I asked her to elaborate on it, and she refused to. I'm like, mm, okay, that's kind of, kind of iffy. I mean, yes. and my parents, my parents actually moved to Valpo at around the same time. And like the first week we lived there, we had a letter from our neighbors addressed to us they signed us up for a credit card <laughs> to a credit card company and it was addressed to bob ain't no bob that lives in our house that lives in our house none of my five sisters none of my five older sisters that i have are named bob my dad's not named bob and our last name was n i i g g e r s that was in Valparaiso, wow. in 2013 when we first moved there wow already already starting already starting off on a bad foot I go out to take the garbage one day, and I, uh, you know what I'm saying? You go out the garbage without some shoes on every now and then, and I'm out there without shoes on, and uh, a truck drives by and says, Bobby, you can't afford shoes? I'm like, what? Wow. Wow. And then Welcome to Indiana. Then I, yeah. together, like, I guess so. I guess so. Uh-huh. Uh, but the university did a great job of handling that, and they helped us out a lot, and they, they gave us support. But... If I'm not, if I don't have the privilege of having a dad with a PhD, a mom with a master's, um, I understand. I understand that those things are very nuanced. Um, and then we have access to Valparaiso's, uh, Valparaiso's um, police department. We have access right. to people who think to higher education and to help us through those times uh, with therapy and what, whatever whatever we may need. That 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 situation could be damaging to someone, you know. And, I love, and luckily for me, through, 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 through the privilege of shoot, my grandparents getting their college degrees, I had access to things that other people don't that look like me. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you about that. I know we were talking about sports, but this just – what you just said raised so many real and present memories for me. Like I said, I am what you would call your garden variety Hispanic, brown skin, black hair, Insanely good looking, the whole thing, right? Yeah, because I grew up, because I grew up in that house, adopted by Anglo parents from Massachusetts, who ended up in Laredo, Texas, with the United States Air Force in the late 1960s. I did not grow up in what was considered a traditional Hispanic cultural home. I will tell you very candidly and without any prevarication. The most quote-unquote racism or discrimination I've experienced in my life has been from other Hispanics because I don't speak Spanish, because I don't like certain kinds of music, because my parents live on the fourth tee box of the Olympia Hills Golf and Country Club, because I grew up in what was considered kind of a um, upper-middle-class privileged environment. And I wanted—I wonder, you know, back to that world of sports, have you ever felt like maybe you face any discrimination from people that look like you? In addition to the people that don't. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. It's um, it's, I don't, but I don't know if it, I don't know if it's categorized as discrimination, more as, more as like you can't understand their struggle 
of their of the of the you can't really empathize with it, and your your lack of blackness right is then defined by what your parents have right, and that, that's that is difficult. I mean, I grew up I grew up a very in, in high school in Baltimore where, where I went to high school. I mean, we had a very good lacrosse program. We won three championships, and like I was one of the only black guys on the squad, and um, I got told I got told by plenty of Plenty of my black friends back in Chicago, where we just moved from, was like, "Of course you're going up there. You're going to go up to the East Coast and play that white man sport." And, uh, <laughs> of course, of course you're not going. Of course you're not going to run track. And so, like, yeah, that, right. was, that was difficult for me to deal with because, like, I was like, "Yo, am I not? Am I not considered black anymore?" Because now I go to a right. private school on the East Coast. So yeah, that is hmm. that is hard. And that's one. That, that is one thing that uh that that is difficult to deal with as a kid. But now as an adult. Like I don't, I don't get bothered. I don't get bothered by it. I mean, yeah. shoot, I got a, I have a white wife from Texas. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's hard to be a, an interracial couple. Um, it's not easy because both sides, you do get, you do get some type of, uh, you do get some type of heat from both sides. But, I mean, I, that really don't bother me, and it's really not, it's really, really not a problem. That's an interesting thing you just said. Um, you get uh, heat from both sides. I, 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 I mentioned to your wife in the message that, you know, at one point I was, you know, very close to being married to an African-American woman, and, and it broke up because of 1963, 1964 thinking from her side of the world. They were just worried that you were, she was getting into the quote-unquote white world and that any potential kids would not have a genuine black upbringing. And it really did end that relationship back in 1991. So that's very interesting to hear you say that. I do want to go back to the world of sports and ask mm-hmm. you about that. Are there lessons that you experienced at Valpo on playing football that, that you think can be applied to our society to help that we don't have this conversation when your son is our age. Yeah, man. So, and one one of the like one of the best opportunities that I had to have honest conversations um, was the it was the start of the actual Black Lives Matter movement being formalized, and mm-hmm. also, um, yeah, through my sorry, let me start over through my time from 2013 to 27 to the, to the fall of 2017. All this thing, like we had a shift in the, in the world. Um, Obama was coming out of office, or the first black president. Uh, the Black Lives Matter uh, movement started to become formalized, and things were starting to become. Police brutality was starting to become televised uh, by by social media posts, and we were starting to get into the age where everyone had a voice, um, and, right. and and their opinions were, were becoming were becoming um, were becoming seen on the internet. Okay, so then you have a shift of that through 2016 when uh, Donald Trump becomes our, our 45th president. And throughout all that, we're trying to win a championship and trying to deal with people with different backgrounds and right. completely different political views. I mean, the guy two lockers down from mine voted, voted for Donald Trump, and I, I, was, I was arguing that we should change the law for Obama to have a third term. So, so yeah, we have, yeah, we have, we had, we had to learn how to operate. And that, and that guy, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm saying by name because he, he's very close. Brian Clark, not a, not a bad yeah. guy. We got different, we got different political views, and we had to learn how to work together. And he ended up being a part of part of our wedding. Like he's one of, he's wow. still one of my best friends. However, we don't agree politically at all. But that, yeah, right. so I, and, and, and I think, I think that it also shows just because that's the case. Right, you can't not love someone. Absolutely. Um, how, however, 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 mutual respect had to be shown by both sides, and he didn't. He he made sure not to disrespect disrespect my views on, on whatever whatever I felt like President Trump was saying or, or doing, and he had to and I had to respect him that he is a that his family historically votes Republican, and that's what they want. So it's it's a very it's a very hard space to live in in, in a locker room. Um, Especially when it comes you, to who chooses music <laughs> in the locker room, that's one of the main things. But hey, I learned I learned from Slipknot. I learned I learned what Slipknot. Oh, that metal. is awesome. I learned I learned learned some country music. Uh, some things I would oh, never I'm listen sorry. to. Yeah, yeah, nah. I'm sorry to hear that. Yes, that we can agree on. Okay, I, as I say, country music. You know, I'm, you want you want a third term for President Obama? I want a constitutional amendment that there is no more country music in the world. So no offense to our. But let me ask you though, JJ, had y'all not been two lockers down with the 
you know, with the collective purpose of winning football games, had y'all just been two guys sitting at a bar talking about politics, do you think it would have been different? Do you think the outcome would have been different and that you might not have become good friends? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It would have, yeah. like, he didn't, we, if you, okay, so say, say me and Ryan, we meet, we meet at a bar, right? Okay. We just start talking politics, and clearly we have different views. That's our only interaction. Like, he didn't, he, right. like there, are no, there are no interactions past that. There are no 5.30 a.m. workouts where we're both growing up together. There are, there are no, there, there are no trips, trips to Chicago together while we're enjoying the city. There are no Cubs games that, that, we, that we're hanging out with. There are no fourth quarter right. comebacks that we're both a part of. So, like, yeah, so, yeah, it, it, is, it is different, and you end up having respect for someone because – you see, you see their work ethic. You see the type of guy that they actually are, and you see how they speak. Excuse me, they treat you with respect. So yeah, it's, it is. So that 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 was one of the more crucial points in my life, and it will continue to be a way that I am comfortable with having these conversations with people that don't think like me, and we right. both come to a uh, both come to a respectful conclusion. Mm-hmm. However, though, yeah. however, man, it is very very difficult to have these conversations because. <laughs> disrespect gets brought up almost every time I've had one with a stranger <laughs> and, and, and that's, that's no way to go about it. Yeah. I know. I, and I agree with you in that, in that regard. I, I think we can have a gentlemanly discussion about things. You and I obviously don't agree on a lot of political things, but that in itself is part of the great tapestry of America. I've always believed that what we refer to as systematic racism is really more of an issue of economic issues versus race. I have very, very clear memory of two people when I was in the Army. One was from Philadelphia, inner city. The other one was from Florida. And those two guys ended up roommates and became very, very dear friends because they bonded over something called mustard sandwiches. They had both survived on mustard sandwiches as kids. And that shared hardship of growing up in a poor community, one white, one black, brought those two guys together in a way, again, kind of like football. They never would have known each other without the Army, maybe mm-hmm. the way you and your friend might not have known each other. Oh, we can't all play football together, and we can't all serve in the military together. So I don't know how we apply that collective goal of winning a championship or winning a battle to the entire society, because I don't think we can agree on what the outcome should be. So moving on to Ferguson, Missouri, which I think a lot of people would agree is sort of where the, the precipitates the Black Lives Movement. I really had a lot of doubts about that situation in Missouri as the facts came out, but I had no doubts about what I saw uh, with the George Floyd video. My family and I have gone to Minneapolis every year for vacation since 2004. I love Minneapolis, and I love that city, and I believe I witnessed a murder on camera. However, I did want to ask, because it adds to the disrespect and the consternation and the acerbic nature of some of these conversations. While I think the, the officers involved should be punished with the full extent of the law, I wanted to ask you, because I know this rubs some people the wrong way, should George Floyd be treated like a hero? Absolutely. I don't think that he meant to be a hero. I don't think that he ever intended that that uh, his death that day would, would cause about social change. But it's a miracle. I'm telling you right now, it's a miracle that I'm on a show with you right now, and I'm talking. We're talking on a in a democratic country about issues that affect multiple classes and multiple races of people differently. So, in that in, right. that in that regard, he is a hero. He's bringing about social change. He's bringing about. I mean, I protested with a uh, a peaceful march with a Catholic priest on on uh, on Sunday. Uh, that that would not have happened, and I would not have met him. And he. And he's going to become a lifelong friend of our families now. And so, yeah, in that, in that, in that regard, absolutely. And I think it's going to bring about some, some, change, some social change in, in how police operate um, and, how, and how practice is done or training is done, I hope, um, because I, want, I do want a better life <clears throat> for, for my children to live in this world. We all do, and I do too. And while I don't, I don't agree. And like I said, we can disagree on these things. I don't think a multiple convicted felon with, you know, illicit drugs in his system should be treated like a hero. He should not have been treated the way he was. Can I, can I ask, can I ask you it, one more question on that? Of course, absolutely. Uh, on, on, and I know, yeah. So, so why, so why, so why, why, why is his criminal background brought up in order to, uh, in order to justify him not being seen as a hero for a civil rights movement. Uh, isn't, well, that, isn't that a part of our, like a part of our American, American 
entire philosophy is that we are, we are people of second chances. If you serve your time, you then have the ability to reinvent yourself and to become better than what you were before. And he was, he was clearly on his way to, to doing that. So, so like, why, so, but why does that, why does that have something? Why does that taint the well, entire movement? Well, I don't know if it should taint the entire movement. I'm not talking about a civil situation. I'm talking about four convictions and three felonies and the fact that he was passing counterfeit bills on his trajectory back to a good place. I just don't know that a person, no matter how things happened, um, just the coverage and the funerals. He's had more funerals than many American presidents. And so I, to me, I don't see him as a hero. I think his life history is relevant. And, and unfortunately, I think it's going to be relevant at trial. And I, I think it's very unfortunate. But to me, in looking at the totality of the situation, you know, I think the, the background of that police officer is legitimate. He had, what, 13 complaints for police brutality? Um, that in itself is, is relevant. And so second chances, yes. Third, fourth, fifth, and sixth, um, holding a pregnant woman at gunpoint, mm, I'm sorry, I, I don't see a positive trajectory in all of that. That's that's fair. The, the the last the last point of holding a pregnant woman at gunpoint, the one one of his one of his uh, many arrests, that is that is wrong. That is wrong, and he was convicted of such things. But he uh, but he shouldn't have been killed for it. Even even for that though, even for that, had they walked in, had the police walked in and caught him holding a gun on a pregnant woman, they should have told him to put down the gun, put your hands behind your back, and come with me. If they walk him out to the side of the house and shoot him in the head or put their foot on his neck for nine minutes, that's wrong. In fact, I hate to say this because it's going to offend some people that I know, that is more wrong than what he did to that pregnant woman. Yeah, and I think getting, getting, into, getting into like, the, uh, like a scale of what wrong is, I, that, yes, you could, you, could, you could absolutely make that, make that distinction. I, I just don't, I don't know, I don't know if, his, if his background is really relevant uh, to, to, yeah. to, what, to what is happening now. But, but hey, if you, if, like I said, I'm, and I'm glad that we can have this conversation and agree to disagree on it um that's the beauty of our country but yeah i I don't i don't i don't see i don't see i don't see the soundness of that argument of uh of of all these things because if if he didn't have a criminal background and was killed that way then then yes he can be deemed as a hero right well like i said that the the word hero is overused anyway and you know it, it is up to people again nobody empowered me nobody empowered me to tell people who they should think of as heroes. That's none of my business. If he's a personal hero to somebody and not to me, again, like you said, that's the beauty of our representative republic, that you have the right to say and do certain things. But you said something that made me think of one other, one other thing that people always push back on. And you're right. There is this, this is back and forth in these conversations when these things happen. So what would you say to people who, who, who bring up the fact that if Black Lives Matter, you mentioned Chicago, you know, what about all the black on black crime in Chicago? Should that not be treated with as much outrage and as much attention as the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis? Because people do talk about that all the time. Yeah, and I, and I, don't, and I don't understand why that, that gets brought up as a deterring, deterring factor of, of, a, of a black man was killed by, by an officer by, string, by officiation on, on the street like a dog. I don't, I don't understand why that gets brought up. And it's not, and it's not as if, and it's not as if uh, us, uh, I say us as a black community because as, as a whole do care about black on black violence. My, one of two guys I played college football with um, at, at Valpo, two of my best friends still, Cody Cotton and, and, Chuck, and Chuck Carter. They, they started a foundation to help youth in Chicago and help develop them with skills that are necessary that that are that that will be necessary for their for their flourishing in their life. So there there is work being done. The Black Lives Matter movement doesn't just stop at police brutality and racial injustice by by a system that is that is built against a, a particular people. It does it does cater to that as well. Um, the, the the donations go to programs to help to help show people that we don't have to kill each other. And you and like and, and statistics show that you actually are more likely to get killed by your own race than than another, um, but it, it's 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 such a, it's such a layered issue and it, like and you you're a history buff and I want and, and that's why I want to ask how do you, why 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 do you think that happens through through a history lens that that black on black murder and specifically Chicago is happening at an alarming rate? <clears throat> well, I think historically speaking. 
from my perspective, and this always rubs people the wrong way, I, I believe it has absolutely everything to do with the breakdown of the what we used to call the nuclear family in all races at all economic levels. I simply believe that if you are a young man in a household without a father figure, you lose an important part of what it means to be a gentleman and a leader in society from that male perspective. And you, you have 70%, 77% of African-American children are born to a single woman. It's hard to ignore that from an empirical standpoint to go back in time and say when that wasn't the case, when it was only 7% back in the early 1960s, yes, African-Americans did not have the same opportunities, but they weren't killing one another either. I want to read you something from the Chicago Sun-Times. It says, earlier Sunday, a 16-year-old boy was shot on the south side. 16-year-old boy. He wasn't killed. He was passing at, here it comes, 3.14 a.m. ante Meridian in the 900 block of West 31st Street in Bridgeport when someone shot him from a passing black sedan, according to police, who's hit in the leg, taken to Stroger Hospital. He's in fair condition. Uh, Johnny, do you remember ever being 16 years old and walking around the streets at 3 o'clock in the morning? And if you were, who would have told you not to do that? My, my dad, but I do, I do remember being <laughs> in high school walking the streets of Baltimore at about 2 a.m. when I wasn't supposed to be. <laughs> Uh, absolutely. We all snuck out, but I mean, this goes on every day in Chicago. I mean, this happens. And again, there, there is, it, this is, this is what I was so afraid I would fall into, even though I promised myself I wouldn't, I don't want to be one of those people, black lives matter, all lives matter. Uh, uh, George Floyd did this, but he also did this. I don't want to be that, but also, but also, but also it's, I guess from your perspective, it's important to look at this and the singularity of that event in Minneapolis, which is perfectly fair to do and say all the extrapolations going forward are good for conversation. And I don't know. I think when you see the explosion of violence and riots and the reaction to all of this, this one just felt different to me, even different than Ferguson and some of the other high profile situations like the one in your, in, you know, in Baltimore. And so I don't know. I don't know why people like me feel the need to say, but what about this? And what about that? To me, I guess the, the, other op, the other option was the one I had pursued up until I saw Sarah's post, which was to say nothing. And so let me go to the final question. Um, if you could, every non-black person in a room today, myself included, and you had the floor to say whatever you wanted, what would you say, JJ? Uh, I, w I, would, I would say that, this, that racial injustice and systematic racism is, is real. And to, to speak more on that, so I, I volunteer – at a high school, uh, when I'm working, I work out. I work at University of California, Berkeley, um, in the athletics department, and also volunteer coach at a high school in Richmond, California. And these are these are the numbers that that are just alarming uh, about about Richmond, California. So the population of 108,000. Right, they have a poverty rate of 15.7 percent. That's 11. Point, as, as compared to 11.8 percent for the rest of the country. Uh, poverty is considered a family of four uh, that makes $26,000, $26,200 or less. Uh, it is 42% Latino, 20.2% black. So about 60, 62% of Richmond, California is Latino or black, and 15% of those people are living in poverty. It's, it's not – those numbers are hard to deny. And when we had COVID, the simple access to, to Internet to do remote learning – our kids weren't, they did not have that. And so it's not, so yes, man, systematic racism is, does exist. It is not, it is not, it is not a direct law and it is not a direct causation of, 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 of legislation that is currently present. However, we are in a reconstruction mode after the civil rights movement and it's still, it's, we're still trying to recover as, as an entire country. And still trying to figure out why these things happen. Like, like something as simple as this, man. These kids, didn't, they don't even know. And a lot of kids don't know this because it's not really taught in school what a proper meal looks like where you have your protein, your complex carb, and your veggie and your fruit. We had an entire hour and a half lecture on that. And it's, 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 it's sad. It's sad. It's sad that, that we don't see a problem within it. And we, it's sad that we don't see how that, how that then reflects our entire economic state. Yeah, uh, I've, I've been to Richmond, 
California. I was stationed at Fort Ord, California, down in Monterey, California, when I was in the Army. And one evening on a trip to Blondie's Pizza in Berkeley, was uh, taking my date home, who happened to live in Richmond, and was held up at knife point in Richmond, California, by an African-American assailant. Um, bad idea, because even in those days, I carried a 9-millimeter Beretta handgun, and you don't bring a knife to a gunfight. And he decided he really didn't need the $13 that I had in my Velcro wallet. After all, he ran off, and we finished out our, our evening as best we could. Since you brought up politics earlier, you mentioned Richmond, California, which is in the Bay Area, the East Bay of California in the San Francisco Bay, Oakland Bay area. Um, politically speaking, Richmond is in the state of California. Uh, it, mm -hmm. They had problems in 1987 when I was there. They clearly are still having problems in 2020, 33 years later. JJ, that is a state run entirely by the Democrat Party, how can they possibly still be in poverty after two generations of Democrat political leadership? So it's lack of access to economic growth. What is the industry that's in Richmond that is going to propel unskilled labor for people who did not have the money to afford a capitalist uh, college like, you, like what is around, right around the corner? You see Berkeley, they did Berkeley. not have the skills yeah. necessary. They did not have the skills necessary to get a scholarship within athletics or get a scholarship within music. So they're, they're, they're capped at a, certain, at a certain salary and they're capped at a certain opportunity because of the lack of access to education, the lack of access to jobs that have economic growth in them uh, that they can actually expand, and the lack of being able to afford property in the Bay Area. Uh, the average household cost in Richmond is like three, 300, I think it's like 317000 I got to check on that. But that, that, that doesn't that does not equate to somebody actually being able to own property and being able to have assets, being able to, to have all of these things. Uh, so I would, I am not a politician. I, I don't have the, the exact answer, but I would say that, that there needs to be an industry or industries that can provide labor and provide, provide growth for these people to have access to these things. Um, well, on that, that we agree, by the way, on that, on that we agree. And, 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 and it is not, and, and there has to be, I know, I know. I can imagine how you feel about government assistance um, on, on to people to help them help them get through rough times. And I and I do think I do think that there is a place for that, and that that needs to happen. I've had family members who need to be on food stamps to get past, just to get past. Is somebody losing their job or getting laid off? And I don't know. I don't know what it looks like post post COVID either. We've got people with we got people with masters losing their jobs right now. It's yeah, it's, a, yeah. it's, it's kind of it's kind of a mess. But, but yes, and then, and then it's this, too. It's people, people like myself um, take, taking, on, taking on the challenge to help out these kids and show, them that, and show them that they can be more than what they strive to be. Like, we had kids skipping school. That, that was a non-negotiable when, uh, when Coach Jackson came in and brought me on his staff. Non-negotiable. You don't go to school. You don't go to all your classes. You are not allowed to practice that day. So that's where hmm. another way where sports, sports can, can be the uh, – can be the microcosm to how you should act and carry yourself. So, so yeah, that, and, that, and that's what it takes, man. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, I, I, I don't know the answer to everything, JJ. I, what I do appreciate is you taking the time to talk about this. I've said many times that I sometimes lose patience with things like this, which cannot be discussed in a tweet or a Facebook like or an emoticon. It requires conversation, even though at the end of the conversation, there are still critical points in all of this that you and I simply aren't going to agree on. But what I lack is the empathy because I've never been black in America, JJ, and no amount of, you know, military community this, being adopted white people that, uh, discrimination with my own Hispanic community is going to change that incontrovertible fact. I'm simply not African American. And I don't know what it's like. It's like I always tell people, with cancer, there's no cancer in my family. I always feel a lack of empathy when people are posting about cancer because I've never experienced it firsthand. But I really I, do I, want I, to I feel commend you. On that you. One. Like, I don't. Yeah. I don't understand how that feels. And when I say I don't understand, it means I've never, I've never gotten I've never it around it. my mind. Yo, that's got to be so yeah, horrible to watch somebody, watch somebody go through that. <laughs> yeah, and 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 it's got to be hard for, and, and it, it, which means I can't see the situation unfolding in our country these past two weeks. 
the way you have. And I don't pretend to know. What I do know is I have tremendous respect for you. I know um, you married a young lady that hails from a great family, and I know you've got about the cutest little son I've ever seen in my life. I'm going to have that picture on the episode description. And, uh, and, I, and I do hope. I do hope that we don't have to talk about this again. I, uh, if, if this is the tipping point where, you know, perhaps there is a need to reimagine policing in America, there are parts of me that can agree with that. We've all had bad situations with police officers. We give these folks very, very insanely um, levels of responsibility that we don't get. And here's something else I know that I think we can agree. I'd love to end the show on something that we can agree on, JJ. I know that police make mistakes. I know that other police cover for police that make mistakes. And I know that it is very rare that police admit their mistakes, whether it's a traffic violation or capital murder. And if there's anything that can be done to fix that, then I'm okay with that. Yeah, and 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 it takes it takes it's probably going to be somewhere in the middle where the solution is going to be a long to have a long term effect on the flourishing of 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 our country, and and yeah. and I hope I hope I hope and I hope I hope I can live to see the day to where uh, some of these things some of these things don't happen. Uh, we will we will have to have this conversation again because it's bound to happen. There's there's sin in the world, and unfortunately. We have biases towards people, and we treat them differently based upon how they look. It's a secular show, but I'm a non I'm a, a, a non secular person. I've wondered about that. What would what would Jesus say about all of this? I've been wondering that for two weeks. I know I know God don't like ugly. That's what my granny used to say. <laughs> <I don't like laughs> that's what I and 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 there's a lot there was a lot of ugly that's been going on for years, and I'm glad that we're finally bringing attention to it, but. Yeah, Granny, 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 Ida Odom. God don't like ugly. So yeah, so I would like to end on on one on one factoid as well, if that's all right with you. Um, I, I wanted to say and, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna be quiet and give you the last word, and then we're gonna thank you for being on the show. So the last word it goes to you, JJ. All right. So yeah. So talking about diversity opportunities and and within the realm of sports. Uh, going back to that, and within the realm of athletic administration and coaching opportunities for for minorities uh, to actually get these opportunities and to, to actually do well in them and just simply get an interview. So this is from the NFL, uh, Occupational Mobility Patterns in the NFL, uh, by Dr. C. Keith Harrison and Scott Berkstein. They did a great job on this, and this is their quote. Between February 5th, 2018 and February 3rd, 2019, NFL teams hired a total of 36 head coaches, offensive coordinators, defensive coordinators, and general managers for open positions. White individuals were hired for 30 of these 36 available positions. Only six different men of color were hired for these 36 recently filled positions. The NFL players make up, NFL players of color make up 70% of the league. That disproportion is a societal issue and a microcosm of the things that we must do better on. And the NFL is taking steps, and I hope that other companies, I hope that other, other organizations can, or can, can recognize that, do their self-study, and then try to make a change so that we can start to bridge the gap and all flourish in the United States. Well said. Listen, if you do get signed by the Pittsburgh Steelers in the fall, Johnny, you just have to promise me that you're not going to let up on the Baltimore Ravens. I want you to hit them just as hard as anybody else. I will, I, I will, I will try to catch Lamar Jackson. <laughs> I promise. <laughs> I, I promise. With, with, please, with, please with every do. hamstring in my body, I promise I will try to catch it. <laughs> because the road to the Super Bowl, I know for a Steelers fan, unfortunately still goes to those pesky Baltimore Ravens, and it's been a long time since I celebrated a Super Bowl victory. Uh, yeah, I think you were probably man, still man, in high what, school back good, in 2008. What games, though, man? I remember Troy Polamalu with the strip sack on Joe Flacco. I remember the uh, interception remember return. Oh man, some great, some great Steeler Ravens games, man, throughout my childhood. 
Uh, I think there was there was stretches where we played in the playoffs for like four straight years. It was awesome. It seemed like every the hardest hitting game I ever saw was that game in 2008 when Paula Mala returned that ball and sent them to the yeah. Super Bowl. And Johnny, I, I was in my mid 40s. I busted out of my easy chair, out the front door, ran up the street into the other cul-de-sac and back. I mean, it was like the Bionic Man. I have never been so happy about an outcome of a football game. My wife. I thought I had lost my mind. Uh, anyway, um, I, I, I hope that you continue to talk to people about this. JJ, we need more of this and less of the anger and the vitriol that I've seen. I was so worried that I was going to be here doing that. But what about this? But what about him? But what? It, like I said, I, I don't know what it's like. But um, in any event, I do wish you absolute very, very best on everything that you that you're doing and pursuing and for you and your son and Sarah my only wish for you is a blessing of life and the blessing of peace and prosperity and thank you so very kindly for joining us on the show today I appreciate you man God bless God bless you as well good evening everybody you know I was struck by the fact that when we got to talking about sports there at the end, how just there was there was just no argument, and I hope that we can continue to have conversations like this. But I hope it is about the tremendous variety of our shared experiences, because believe me, wherever you stand on everything that's going on in the country right now, when you really and I know this from traveling around the world with the military and as a professional speaker, when you get to know people. It is amazing how much we really have in common. And my final thought is that whether you are a protester or a police officer or a young man walking the streets of Chicago early on a Sunday morning or somebody hosting a podcast or somebody hoping to make it to the NFL, your life matters. And so since Sarah Nunez was the inspiration for this show, we'll get out of here with one of my favorite Fleetwood Mac songs, Sarah. My name is Jason Dyes. You've been listening to The Power Performance, the show that asked the question, if your brand were a band, would you leave the audience wanting more? And it's because of special episodes just like this that webinars and PowerPoint and boring LinkedIn Live meetings send me hate mail. Until next we speak, we'll talk to you all very soon. Let's say-